Hello and welcome to my podcast episode 1.12. It's the 28th of April 2020 when we have 2020 vision about our lives in some ways. Today I want to try something different again. My last attempt to speak without any segues was less than successful. And I want to try that again. So this time I'm going to share a number of thoughts without any kind of link, like I tried the last time. One, today I was doing what I do most days, which is continue with my various creative works, which include working on my system of composition as well as, of course, creating new music, as well as writing, and that covers my work on screenplays, and today, at least, on one non-fiction book. I don't want to share too much about these projects yet, because I find that that takes something out of the process, some magic. It's some kind of jinx that, for some reason, just happens. I forget who I saw, or rather heard, mention the same thing, that if you talk too early, too much about something you are creating, it is a kind of jinx. It somehow takes some energy out of it, some magic, and then you make it more of an uphill struggle for yourself to finish. So I'm avoiding that by not being too specific. Although, of course, I very much look forward to sharing more when these projects are far enough along. I mentioned that I'm continuing work on my system of composition, of composing music, and that is something that is necessary to do on a regular basis because it involves building up resources and ways of doing things which will improve my ability to produce new music. I already have this set of methods and tools far along, but the nice thing about it is that it gets better and more useful all the time. And part of this work is also being systematic with music I've written. Over the several years after I started teaching myself music, I've written literally tens of thousands of bars of music. and. An important part of the process is archiving all of it and having it easily accessible for later reference. Because a lot of it, when you return to music you've written in the past, you see new things you can do with it. And some things, of course, are already finished pieces and are ready to go out. And with, for example, the Iceland Symphony, which I will be publishing this year, many pieces are finished and what remains is linking work and finalizing some parts of it. And that is something I'm also continuing all the time. And my aim is to be quite drastically productive in the future, and that's the aim of the whole work I've been doing on building my own system, my own vocabulary when it comes to music. One of my most exciting and thrilling discoveries when I was setting on this path of composing music 
was when I realized that that is something you can do, and that many composers do. I was reading about Philip Glass, and how, when he was starting out, at first, he was writing more conventional pieces as he was continuing his music studies. But then, at some point, fairly early on, he decided to start over, and. Pretty much renounce the earlier work as not being part of his mature output in his own style. And what he did then was he started with a clean slate and with the simplest elements of music, and he continued building from that, adding things to that vocabulary, and it kept building and building, and finally he had an enormous range of tools. As the years passed, it became bigger and bigger. So he was able to do more and more. That is one thing that makes music so interesting, namely how it is built of the simplest elements, and from those you can create endless combinations. At one point, I started doing the math of how many different combinations of just chord changes alone I could. Make from materials I have created for myself, and the figure became incredibly high very quickly. I didn't write any figures down, but maybe I'll talk more about this another time. Two, I had a dream a while ago, a few nights ago, that had an interesting aspect, and it wasn't the first time I've experienced this. In that dream, I went to a downstairs basement shop where they sold used books and comic books. The kind of place that it's not very clear will even survive after this crisis situation is over. But the kind of place also where I've spent quite a lot of time, especially in my earlier years. And in that dream, I went to the comics section. And there were Marvel and DC superhero comics, which I used to read all the time when I was younger. The modern ones, the the actual comics, aren't even worth reading anymore. They are just something completely different than what they started out as. Actually, the films these days are more worth spending your time on than the comics that Marvel and DC have been putting out since since the late 1990s. Uh, anyway, I'm not very invested in this world anymore because I have moved on in terms of my interests. And other than watching the movies, which can be good fun and especially in good company, I've really enjoyed it. Even though, of course, the stories are quite familiar to me because they recycle the stories I already read when I was younger. But anyway, in this dream, I picked up a Superman paperback, or. It was a thing that we call an album in Finland. It's a format of comics that is larger in size. The page size is larger than regular comic book issues, and usually these albums have been like 68 pages or something like that. Not very thick, and this was a Superman album from the 1980s, and the artist. Of both the cover and the story inside was Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, and apologies if I mispronounced that. 
and I flipped through the comic book in that dream, and I studied the artwork carefully, noticing details, and I especially stopped to look at two spreads. One thing about this album that doesn't match how things usually were in the past in particular was that it seemed like the story was being told in full two-page spreads. And on the first spread out of these two that I was looking at, there was a car careening out of control through some suburban or sparsely populated area where there were only some houses here and there. And I turned the page and Superman had been flying towards the car on that previous spread. And on this spread, the angle was from the seashore on the beach below this cliff. And the car drove perilously to the edge of the cliff where it stopped. Or it was not clear whether it was going to fall or not. I studied that picture in detail and I could tell the exact angle. It was where the water meets the beach, then there was the beach, the cliff, and that went up some 20 meters perhaps, and then the car came halfway over the cliff and hung there, and Superman was flying towards the car. And the interesting thing about this dream was that even though this was not a story I had ever read, and as far as I know, this particular story doesn't exist, it hasn't been printed anywhere, I studied the art in detail, and it wasn't a generalized impression of this artist's artwork. It was complete in every detail, down to the inking and the ink lines, and I really have a very vivid image of it, all the details and the way the shading worked, and so on, and the way Superman was drawn, and all of it. So what is interesting about that to me is that my mind, and I believe all of our minds, I don't think it's just me, are capable of producing new artwork in a style that is familiar to us, even though we haven't ever seen that piece of artwork before, because it's a new piece. And that's kind of staggering when you think about it. The creative part of it exists. And of course, even though I'm not able to bring that out by replicating that then on paper, it means that the imagination can create extensions of things we've already seen that are complete in every detail. I'm somebody who used to really study the artwork in these comics and I could tell different artists apart and different inkers, as well as the pencilers. Sometimes they were the same people, but often different. And even at some point, the colorists, the people doing the coloring for the books, I became interested in that as well. And of course, the writing was always of interest. But when I was younger, I already developed an eye for recognizing these different artists. So here was a dream where my mind conjured up artwork created by this particular artist, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. And my mind was able to do, and I believe everyone's mind is able to do this, even though lacking the technical ability to recreate that art in real life. So the vision exists, or 
that faculty exists that could create that and did create it mentally. It was really very clear and that moment when I was looking at the pictures in the dream, it was an extended moment. It didn't just pass by in a flash and the level of detail was complete, not something giving a vague impression of that artist's work. Three. Here's a thought that had never occurred to me, but when I read it, it seemed to me definitely true and that the person writing this had pinned down something quite interesting. He was talking about how the music of Jean Sibelius, the most famous Finnish composer and actually one of the most respected symphonic composers in particular of the 20th century, how his music has a clear power to evoke nature, natural settings. In the case of his music, it's forests and lakes and the sea, but in particular forests and lakes. And that's a reaction that has been shared by many, many people across time, and it seems to have come about very naturally and spontaneously. It doesn't even require someone else saying that here is something you can find in this music. And the other part of that observation, and maybe even more interesting, was that the music of inland composers, composers who have lived inland not near the seashore or not very often near lakes, for example, or rivers. There seems to be no suggestion of the sea, for example, at all in their music. And this applies even to some of the very greatest composers. This doesn't in any way diminish their stature or achievement, but it's a quality that I do miss in their music. The inland composers that this writer mentioned in this old issue of the Gramophone magazine included Beethoven and Mozart. I have to say, I feel it's true. I can't think of any piece of music by them where there's a sense of the sea or even forest, actually. But in particular, and maybe more definitely we can say that there's no sense of the sea in any music by Beethoven or Mozart. A lot of it is either indoors music designed with that in mind, but also in nature just reflecting more kind of indoors concerns. Beethoven has a symphony that is called the pastoral and it is meant to evoke nature, but even in that I get no sense of the sea or any waterway, any body of water. And this is an interesting thing because, of course, there's nothing inherently reminiscent of the sea about the instruments of the symphony orchestras that Sibelius or Beethoven or Mozart used. They didn't use the exact same orchestra, of course. The orchestra was developing over time and continues to develop, and now it can encompass any instrument whatsoever. But so the suggestion of nature comes from a magical process of composition and involves this power to 
evoke impressions without even these obvious ways to suggest waves, for example. It's somehow inherent in the music. Like anyone who listens to the music of Sibelius, the symphonies in particular, it would be hard to imagine anyone doing that and not getting a sense of Finnish landscapes or forest landscapes in general. Four, midsummer is approaching and even though I have lived all my life in Finland and even though Finland is the ideal country for celebrating midsummer, we have midsummer bonfires by the lakeside and bright summer nights of often velvety magic and so even though the setting is perfect life has gone in such a way that to this day I have not gotten to enjoy a perfect midsummer yet in my adulthood I mean I have particular ideas of what that would involve the setting and of course that would be a lakeside setting and there would be rowing on the lake and the bonfire and staying in a cabin somewhere of course and more but maybe it's better not to talk too directly about your dreams it's just something that occurred to me as i was considering how close we are already to may and then of course to june five i was reminded by something i'm not sure what of something that happened two or three years ago. I have still not seen the whole film Lion King. It came about in the time when I was just a lot by myself, so I didn't have anyone to watch that film with. I would like to do so in good company one day. This anecdote relates to watching a scene from that film that, of course, is probably the most notorious scene because it is the scene that is most likely to evoke tears in viewers. Someone was going to show me that scene because we were talking about this type of scene that can have that effect on us. Before watching that scene, I warned her that I can't promise that I will be moved by it because I have quite a high resistance to scenes that on purpose aim to move you or touch you. I also need the scene to feel authentic and heartfelt. So I was just mentioning that I can't promise it will have that effect on me but don't think that I'm uncaring if that turns out to be true. Well, she showed me the scene from the laptop, and when she did, we were situated in such a way that she was at the computer, the laptop, and I was sitting a little behind her, so she wasn't looking at my expression in that moment. But as the scene played out, sure enough, I got misty-eyed, and one tear rolled down my cheek, and onto her arm and that was how she noticed that yes the scene did make me cry 
There was no particular reason to mention this story now. It was just something I was thinking about. But yes, I agree with something that Ray Bradbury said. This was in a video interview that you can find on YouTube. I think the video is entitled something like Ray Bradbury on love, on the topic of love. And he said that a person who can't laugh freely is a sick person. Not well, he meant. And a person who can't cry, who can't release his tears, as he put it, is sick in that direction. I would think that someone who has never been moved by any work of art to the point of tears, and maybe with a different work of art, or maybe the same one, to the point of laughter, real laughter, something they can't stop, they can't help laughing, or they can't help shedding a tear, I think that person would not be completely well. Those are universal reactions, and they are signs of a healthy person. Well, that's it for me this evening, and may your day and night have some magic in it. I think we could all use that. Here's to some better times ahead, and good night.